Welcome to ARC Next Sessions, episode 53. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be talking about the donation of the John Lautner masterpiece, the Sheets Goldstein House, to LACMA, the AIA's announcement of Kevin Spacey, Neri Oxman, and Rem Koolhaas as keynote speakers in this year's AIA National Convention, the U.S. government's statement that computers qualify as drivers in the world of autonomous vehicles, And finally, we look at the question posed this week, is architecture shifting from a profession to a lifestyle choice? How's everybody doing? Pretty good. All right. Well, let's let's get... (laughs) I think I speak for all of us when I say pretty good. Pretty, pretty. We've got so much to talk about. We're just (laughs) waiting with bated breath to get going. All right. Well, let's uh, let's just jump right into this. Today, which is Wednesday, the day before we're releasing this episode, we reported on the donation of the stunning Sheets Goldstein House to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. The modernist masterpiece, most widely recognized as Jackie Treehorn's house in The Big Lebowski, was donated to the museum by James Goldstein, the owner of the house since 1972. And the donation also includes a $17 million maintenance fund, the Skyspace art installation by James Terrell, and an adjacent building that currently houses an office and a private nightclub. Michael Govan, LACMA's director, had a mission of acquiring LA residential landmark buildings since he took his position at the museum 10 years ago. After receiving multiple offers from homeowners to sell their properties, this is the first time a house of this stature has been donated per his original wishes. What do you guys think? This is a kind of a landmark moment for architecture preservation. Yeah, this is just like amazing news, not only for LACMA and being able to kind of have this access to this level of architectural landmark status, but also just kind of bringing out the private home as an architectural landmark into a more publicly accessible and and protected by a vested institution like LACMA. It's for that institution to be able to open up the house for potential exhibitions and talks as it's kind of planning to do. And also in the agreement, there wasn't just the house that was donated, but also, I believe, uh, four other acres that Goldstein owns that are, would become property of LACMA under this, or under this agreement. It kind of operate, it gives this huge opportunity for exhibiting architecture, both for the Sheets Goldstein house and also whatever may come after that for LACMA's programming that previously doesn't, hasn't really existed in LA. And of course, there are house museums and there are more than you can count of historic homes in LA, but having this access and agreement with an institution like LACMA is kind of really amazing opportunity. I was, in fact, just talking with Sylvia Levin, the um, critical theorist and architecture writer at UCLA about this earlier today for another interview. And she was saying how unfortunate it was that LA didn't really have a strong institution for exhibiting architecture or for having an institutional backing behind architectural exhibition. And this is not exactly that, but it certainly sets the standard and certainly hopefully will kind of precipitate more investment in these kinds of kinds of buildings and landmarks. Well, Christopher Hawthorne from the LA Times actually commented on the difficulty of this in the article. He, he mentioned that, you know, it's taken 10 years now for Govan to finally acquire or, or have a, a donation, an architectural donation to the museum. And, you know, considering that, that time, it's probably realistic to not expect too many others will follow very soon. He specifically mentioned that the maintenance costs required for upkeep And the fact that paintings are profitable or portable and architecture is not means that houses, however important, aren't collected with anything like the zeal of modern and contemporary art. Paintings don't leak, nor do paintings have neighbors. So it is, it definitely is a much more difficult thing to acquire architecture than art, but hopefully this is the uh, beginning of a 
trend here in LA, at least. And weirdly, like so much more expensive, at least in terms of what you hear about in those kind of spectacular art dealings in the art market of singular Damien Hurst pieces or so selling for hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, when you compare that to architectural prices, even for things like Lautner Masterpiece, it's really incredible how the investment so much more is has to be towards the upkeep of the house. And I think that the Christopher Hawthorne's article, which is a great kind of look at the history of the house and, and what Goldstein has done to it since the original Lautner design and his, his additions, installing things like a full-fledged jungle that requires three full-time gardeners and a landscape architect to maintain, like crazy stuff like that. Really? Really, yeah. I love James Goldstein. I mean, <laughs> this guy is like a serious stud. I mean, he, they, he, he, won't, he won't disclose his age, but apparently he's around 70. You know, he dresses just I think, fabulously. I think the curbed, well, yeah, he wears only Versace and some other designer brand. And I think that there was a curbed article as well about this that described his fashion sense as Dr. Teeth from the Muppets. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. he, get, judging from the photograph I've seen, I would agree that he is a total stud. And yeah, he's well into his 70s, it sounds like. He's <laughs> a total old hippie, it looks like. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I love his, the relationship that he's had with this house. I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting. It also brought up in this article, he originally bought this house in 1972 because he needed more room for his Afghan hound. <laughs> for his dog. Yeah. But what I love about it is that when he bought it, he recognized its architectural value, but he also recognized that it was a far from perfect house, that it needed a lot of work. And his goal from the beginning was not to restore it to its original state, but to actually restore it to what it always had the potential of becoming. So it was never really a restoration project. It was a transformation project into really kind of discovering what it, what it was meant to be. And he, he hired Lautner later to work on that, that renovation project to uh, continue developing it. Because when he bought it, it was, it was kind of a cheap, you know, cheaply built, less than amazing structure. <laughs> okay, Plus so for my gun sorry, this raises some really difficult, difficult questions. Sorry, but I didn't read the Christopher Hawthorne article. Did they mention, is there a maintenance budget, uh, you know, endowment going along with this gift? Yes, okay. $17 million. $17 million as an endowment. All right. For maintenance, yes. So... I have to tread a little carefully here because I don't want to, you know, betray any secrets. But as the Indianapolis Museum of Art campus architect, we do own, purchased and own the Aeroserenin's Miller House in Columbus, Indiana, as one of our properties. So it's a house museum that we own and maintain, and it's open for public tours. And I have mixed feelings about the whole notion of it, in part of houses as museums. In part, just the maintenance budget on a painting is next to nothing compared to the maintenance budget on a house. I mean, seriously, keeping just the Miller house, this one three-bedroom, four-bedroom house, and the gardens, because it's got pretty extensive gardens by Dan Kiley, just keeping it maintained, replacing the trees as they need to be replaced, you know, dealing with the roof is a lot of skylights. It's a very expensive proposition to maintain a house in this kind of pristine situation. But Paul, when you mentioned that Goldstein lived in the house and you love how he lived in it and his relationship to it, that's what dies as soon as a house becomes a house museum. And I have a really, now that I have been sort of in, you know, in charge of maintaining the Miller house for four years now, not completely in charge, we have a whole staff, but it's in my purview. I see how a house just dies when it doesn't have people that actually live in it. And so that whole persona of Goldstein sounds like it's just it's going to disappear. Now, if they're doing programming in there that brings people in and makes it more lively in a way that's sort of a, you know, a community space, that's a whole other story in a way. 
But if you're trying to preserve it as this pristine, perfect work of design, which Lautner's work is definitely deserving of, I just feel like there's a real philosophical conflict in my mind. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. You've been to the other Neutra houses and whatnot out there. No, Donna, I think you definitely, you definitely raise an important point. And, and I think that in, at least in the Hawthorne article and in, so far as what we know about what Lachma's plans for the, for the house are, is that it will not become this hermetically sealed, you know, house museum kind of immortalizing Goldstein's time in it. I mean, there are some hilarious things that are very much part of him and part of the house that have, you know, photographs of him with NBA players and models as kind of like a basic decor system and, you know, just <laughs> like things like that. And it's it's very charming and it's very like true to the personality of the house. But part of the agreement was also that Goldstein would still be living in the house at a point where LACMA is still running some type of programming or using it in an official fashion. That's super brave. So they're, they're basically not kicking him out and he's not, by donating it, offering to also leave. It's more just like, I recognize I have something pretty great here and uh, I don't want it to go to waste or be put into, you know, the hands of a irresponsible buyer. So I'm going to make sure that it becomes a Californian, part of a California institution. Well, I mean, another article that's worth looking back at is a piece that Orhan wrote for Arconnect back in 2012 titled Lautner's Concanon Residence mm-hmm. uh, from yeah. Dust to Dust, which talked about the demolition of the Concanon residence that was on the Sheets Goldstein property in order to make room for an addition, which which I believe was the property that he made for the office and the very swanky private nightclub. And in that piece, Orhan wrote that it was James Goldstein's intention to never sell the house. So, I mean, he he's never really, he's always planned to to donate it and let it be open to the public. And I think, you know, hopefully with this intention that he's had, maybe he and LACMA are developing a plan to continue evolving the house in a way that kind of fulfills the vision of both he and Lautner. The only thing I ever have a trouble with projects like, or things like of this nature, is that it's getting donated to a public institution. It's not a private institution. So, I mean, I could see this coming down the road that, you know, there's a budget crisis within Los Angeles County. They start looking at where, where to start cutting and they start pulling back on some of the maintenance of this project or they start shifting the endowment, the $17 million around to kind of pick up losses in other areas. So, you know, where this is a gift, it can also be an albatross as well for the public to have to deal with. So potentially that could be an issue. And inevitably, you know, it's possible that this building could be moved to Minnesota and be placed where uh, <laughs> where Frank Gehry's house was that has been shifted around from backyard to backyard for the past 15 or 20 years. So, I mean, I would be worried about that as well, you know. <laughs> you can't move a swimming pool. It's impossible. Yeah, I don't think this house would survive a one-foot displacement. <laughs> and I'm sure most of that value is, in, is invested in the view. I mean, I've never been to this house, but... I am just, I've seen the Big Lebowski enough and I've seen enough beautiful photos to know like that there's so much just absolute preferential treatment towards allowing that view to really be as dramatic as possible. And it just, it, it's, it's, Ken, I'm sure Minneapolis is beautiful, but I have no idea what, uh, I don't think you can approximate the uh, Pacific Ocean and the Mississippi. So yeah, the, I think the only thing that, that, that has, you know, the one thing that, that this house has going for it is that the conditions in Southern California aren't as harsh as they would be in Indianapolis sure. or Minnesota or what have you. So so perhaps the maintenance budget will go a little bit longer and last. So, But I, I agree with Donna about the hermetically sealed nature of these kinds of gifts as well, because I would imagine if you go to Falling Water, it's just a, you know, oh, okay, yeah. 
and then you just leave again. <laughs> well, speaking of location, before we move on, I just wanted to share one little comment in uh, from the LA Times piece. I believe it was in the LA Times piece. Uh, you know, Lautner actually hated LA, even though he did a lot of his work here. And there's a quote, uh, Lautner remarked at his 80th birthday celebration when asked what he would do to improve Los Angeles, that he would construct a huge concrete boulder, take it up to Mulholland Drive and roll it down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what great. he thinks of the uh, the location of this house. <laughs> so he produces genius and poetry under duress, obviously. He, he did yeah. a beautiful job. His work's amazing. Yeah, if only we could approximate that context of building in L.A. of just like the heyday of post-war stuff where you could do whatever you, you could do some crazy things even yeah. if you hated living here. Alas, instead we have things like news around self-parking office chairs. <laughs> <laughs> the next news item we wanted to talk about today, it was a somewhat landmark case, another landmark thing, of uh, the U.S. government allowing the computers that run Google's self-driving cars to be considered, legally speaking, as drivers. This has been like a, an ongoing kind of difficulty in all of the legislation and regulation around driverless cars is that no matter how safe they can be proven to operate and how they effectively do not require a human driver, there has been some discussion of, of necessitating a human in the, who is capable of driving should something happen to the automated system. And so this is kind of, you know, a complete erasure of that, that now it's just okay for a self-driving car to be considered, to have the computer inside of a self-driving car considered the driver itself. And this is particularly granted for the uh, a proposal that Google has submitted. And so I'm not exactly sure whether other self-driving car technologies would be also allowed to be to qualify within this regulation. But effectively, it means that we are one step closer to having this ubiquity of self-driving vehicles and not have it to jump through as many regulatory hoops of, say, well, if you're drunk in the car, can you still be legally counted as the driver? It's like, don't worry, the computer's got you. So who would pay the uh, legal fees if a computer driver killed someone? These are the wonderful ethical questions we get to deal with uh, <laughs> now that we get to consider the legal implications of saying that we've labeled effectively a computer as a driver, a human label as given to a computer apparatus, which is not probably the first time that that has happened, but it's pretty fascinating to imagine what will happen after this in terms of the regulatory process. California is kind of one of the Regulation for driverless cars in California is pretty much at the forefront, at least in the U.S. We've kind of pushed for these things to happen faster than elsewhere, and that obviously has a lot to do with Google and what's happening in Silicon Valley. But generally, this technology is just like getting a lot more approvals, and things are are moving forward in a seemingly a continual pace. We also got to kind of complement this news this week with this fun video that Nissan put out where they outfitted some office chairs in their office with the same technology that allows their cars to basically park themselves, the so-called intelligent parking system, so that whenever there were a bunch of office chairs scattered in disarray, anyone could clap, give a single clap, and the chairs would dutifully return to their, to their home bases. And so this is, these are just kind of like more ways that we're seeing the driverless car and the autonomous vehicle technology being integrated into the ubiquity of daily life. And it's, it's something that regardless of how we can like point and laugh at it and see it as see something as a driverless office chair is something, you know, hilarious, that it's it's a, a way to acclimate to what can be a very overwhelming technological implication of something like calling cars themselves drivers. So very exciting news all around. So maybe they can uh, make office chairs like like car seats that go 
from your office to your car, so you don't we don't have to stand stand or look anymore. Right, exactly. So one one clap for home, two claps for work, three claps for you know the bar. The bar. Yeah, exactly. It's funny as you describe that. All I can think about is the uh, is the uh, Pixar animation Wall-E. Yeah, that oh, image yeah. comes in, comes to my mind a lot too. Yeah, we're so close that to that utopia where we never have to leave the seat. So exciting. Although this was, you know, there was no discussion here about how sitting is killing us. There's no like exactly <laughs> you know, self-parking Darth Vader-esque <laughs> like thing to lean against <laughs> that doesn't require you to sit. But this was this was foretold in the movie Phantasm. So if you've ever seen the movie Phantasm, we know there are driverless cars that exist way back into the 1980s and 70s that attack you and kill you. There was also, weren't there also driverless cars in Blade Runner? Or no, was it, uh, what was that one? The, uh, Total Recall. Total Recall. Driverless. Minority Report. Yeah, driverless cabs. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to that Stephen King movie where the machines start attacking everyone and then semis start attacking each other. Sorry, go ahead, Donna. Uh, it's becoming more and more clear to me that these really are going to happen. We really are going to have self-driving cars all over the road. And the safety thing comes about from everyone having them, right? And I think anyone who hasn't seen the little self-parking office chairs video, go look at it because it's it, you can totally extrapolate it into a, a, a highway <laughs> or a downtown city street where cars are figuring out how to not hit each other and get people to where they want to go. I've been involved here in Indy. We have a, a proposed bus rapid transit system going in. Which one of my arguments I've been making for why we should build this bus rapid transit is that unlike light rail, bus rapid transit infrastructure is basically just roads and it can easily be used by anything driving on the road. And since I do think that we're going to see cities investing in self-driving cars as a form of public transit, the bus rapid transit that we build now will not be completely wasted money because the infrastructure is still there. They could accommodate self-driving buses as well as self-driving cars. Whereas if you build something like like a light rail track or a, a monorail or something, no other infrastructure can use that. So, you know, I think that in this case, sort of the the less investment, the better and the better use of that money it's going to be. Because I do totally see that in, in 20 years, my city could easily function with only autonomous cars. That's something that certainly in LA is another reason why it seems kind of like a no-brainer to adopt this type of technology. and. Often, as we've seen things with other things, like at the expense of investing in larger forms of mass transit or public mass transit. But the safety thing is also an interesting issue because in reviewing the the government's response to the Google proposal, people from Google were, were most concerned with not so much having the driver be the one that would be able to step in in case something happened to the computer system. But in fact, Google was still concerned with limiting human interaction with the system because that those moving parts would allow for mistakes. It's like as soon as we allow humans to interact with the system, we're opening up more opportunities for dangerous situations because they'll screw up with the tech. The tech is like less likely to make a mistake. Exactly. Which has been proven to be statistically correct. Exactly. Just from the testing that Google's done. But we do know also that these technologies are, you know, they're not, whether or not the application has been fully regulated, there are ways in which these like especially the parking assist have already become somewhat ubiquitous. I would imagine that a somewhat similar technology is being used in Amazon's fulfillment centers where they have, there's incredible videos you can find and we'll post them to the show notes of these giant floors of uh, warehouses where robotic systems are dozens or perhaps hundreds at a time are all moving in synchronicity with one another to put products back on shelves or take them off of shelves. And it's something that can only be like <laughs> either analogizes like a hive mind or something that is purely robotic where all of these individual systems can talk to one another 
at a pace and at a fidelity that humans just can't. Another amazing example of that that I believe we posted maybe a couple of years ago was this like hive of drones that I believe some students at MIT developed to create like masonry structures that just would work together in uh, you know this orchestrated fashion to to put together buildings. Self-assembling building bots. That's where we're going, right? Yeah. So oh. it's 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 when the human is the cargo, I guess, that you know things get a little bit more complicated. So Donna, shall we move on to uh, the next news post that we want to discuss today? One that might be a little bit might be close to your heart and also very far from it. Both those things exactly. <laughs> and speaking of self self assembling building bots, you know, if that is the direction architecture is going, then I think that this entire article that I'm presenting is uh, gonna, just going to be moot. So Nicholas Crody reported on Duo Dickinson's article called Architecture Has Become a Lifestyle Choice. And I have some real problems with this article. My initial reading is that, first of all, it popped up all over all my social media all at once. It's one of those really strident sort of articles that comes up on social media and suddenly you can't not read it because everyone else is talking about it. I will say that on Archonnect, on the our next presentation of it, we have a, there's a really pretty good discussion going about what it means. Let me describe the article a little bit first, though. Basically, the article is essentially complaining that architecture students today are not being taught how to build. And the fact that they don't know how to build means they are just designing pretty things. And surrounding themselves with pretty things is a lifestyle choice and not an actual commitment to a profession and to professional training. You know, I think anyone can agree that certainly students don't get a lot of building in schools or a lot of building knowledge in schools, although some programs do focus on that. And I think everyone can agree that a lot of students are learning today that there are great ways to do really sexy renderings. And that's a lot of their time. But, you know, if you go back and look at Paul Rudolph's renderings that were done by hand, they're still super sexy renderings. When I initially read this article and didn't know who the author was, my sense of it was that it was like an earnest 25-year-old who just hadn't had enough exposure in the profession yet to understand how complex it is and how the complexity is really part of what's wonderful about our profession. And then I got to the bottom of the article and realized that it was written by Duo Dickinson, who is, first of all, he's older than I am. So he was born, I think, in 1955. And he's also someone who I would characterize as a sort of really backward-leaning traditionalist when it comes to architecture. And, and I think in this case, I'm reminded of the Upton Sinclair quote about how it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> Duo Dickinson has built... <laughs> Duo Dickinson has built an amazing reputation and career doing great traditional houses for people. And he wrote a couple of books on small house living and good residential design that are all very valuable pieces of architectural media. But this article to me was like a really hot take of, oh, these young kids today don't know how to build anything and therefore they're never going to do anything of any value. It's all just going to be trendy, you know, formal, glistening, shining garbage. I just, I don't think that's true. I think that we can have both. And I've been saying this for how long? That we can have both. We can have people that are like Zaha and we can have people that are like Zumpthor and that we can have people that are like Dickinson. You know, we can have all these people. The one thing I also want to mention is that the article for sort of wonks about statistics, the article actually points out some really interesting statistics that are up for some pretty good discussion, like the fact that uh, how many architecture students are in school right now versus how many we actually need in the profession. There's also what I thought was a great statistic that architecture is the profession among licensed trades that has the highest percentage of self-employed practitioners, and that we have 21% of architects are self-employed, and uh, among lawyers, that percentage is only 11 
So I actually find that really fascinating. And I think it opens the whole conversation about how there are so many different ways to specialize or do things in architecture. And I do feel like this article in particular, and potentially the website that it's presented on, which is called Common Edge, which I had never heard of until today, they want to make things very black and white because that's how they're going to get the eyeballs in front of the article. So yeah, I have some mixed feelings about this. Ken, did you read this? What did you think? <laughs> I could talk about this for about an hour on my own. And I, I, I realize <laughs> Didn't I'd be I just do that? Myself. I think I just did that. <laughs> I, I realized I'd be talking to myself, but this kind of, it's like, I wonder if Common Edge is kind of like Medium, you know, that online magazine where you can kind of post anything yeah. you want. I've never seen such a, uh, such a piece written with seemingly interesting facts and statistics, but no depth, no in-depth look exactly. at those numbers. So like, first of all, I mean, the very fact that things are getting built, very complex things are getting built, very complex buildings are getting built, kind of just shuts down his argument that they don't, nobody knows how to build. Somebody's built. Somebody, first architects don't build. We design the things that get built. And we're often blamed for things when the things aren't watertight, but we're not responsible for constructing a watertight structure or a building. We're responsible for detailing that building. It's up to somebody else to actually build it. And deeply complex things are getting built. It's not just sculpture. These are buildings that are physically existing in reality. These are not virtual buildings. So somebody is doing that work. And what is the suggestion that we do? Do we stop educating architects? At what point do we start to, what, then when do we allow people to come back and join the profession again? Because the one number he didn't put in there, and I've been trying to find it on the internet, and maybe that's because, you know, most of his facts are derived by just doing his Google search. <laughs> but what is the percentage of boomers on the edge of retiring from the profession? So what are those numbers? How do we look at those things? And, you know, the fact that there are, there are a lot of architects being, there are a lot of people graduating from architecture programs and maybe not going into architecture because exactly. they don't see their profession as providing enough of a, a value to them. It's not a bad thing. First off, we've had this discussion on numerous uh, podcasts where I've, I've laid it out. These four plus two programs are recipes for disaster. And the reason why student loan debt and architecture profession is so high is because they're going to these ridiculously angled programs that are meaningless in the end, at the end of the day. And they're getting charged these really ridiculous rates for student tuition. So that's part of the problem. I mean, I never understood where he's trying to come off on this thing in his piece because it really, none of it makes sense. There's like facts, supposition, some, some statistics, <laughs> more stuff. And there's never really any clear narrative about how, what's your point? I mean, this is, you know, these 30-year professionals have been bitching and moaning forever about not being able to, uh, not students not being able to design stuff or detail stuff. Then start asking for construction documents when you have an interview. Start understanding the software. Then maybe you could test these students on their ability when they come out of school instead of just looking at the pretty pictures. You're not doing your job if you're not asking for the right information when you're interviewing somebody. I found it strange that having at the beginning of the piece and putting so much preference, uh, preferential treatment towards statistics of how many architecture students are, how many people are going into architecture in school and how many architecture students are coming out and actually pursuing what the U.S. Department of Labor qualifies as architecture, which I'm sure, of course, Donna, by our, our understood definition of what architecture can be is like barely a slim slice of that pie. But that there's no other larger discussion of just the nature of higher education right. has changed so drastically in the last 50 years. 
Columbia and Harvard didn't issue, I don't think, either didn't accept or didn't issue diplomas to women 50 years ago. Right. There's like so many things that would allow automatically way more people just to go to school. And also the fact with just in general, high education, inflation and higher education, expectations, lower, just like more schools and being able to get into schools more easily. I think it's just really irresponsible to kind of float those statistics as the dogmas that will lead your your article's argument into being accepted without discussing the overall context, especially when architecture education itself has also changed so much in that time. I kind of also just can't shake off the idea that this guy just doesn't really want to like think of the other ways that architects architects could be operating. It seemed just very, yeah, Donna, (laughs) I agree with what you said. It just seemed very much like the, if, what was the quote again, that you can't believe something. It's Upton Sinclair and it's from the jungle. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. (laughs) Right. So that that just seemed perfectly. I can just like not have to say anything else because I I love that. That's great. I just also want to go back to what you were saying, Amelia, about higher education and the nature of it. You know, if we do end up with self-replicating building bots, then maybe we really do want architecture students and architects to have a great sort of liberal arts, you know, social understanding of the world and understand things like poetry and form and how that relates to content. And we don't have to worry so much in the future about what size nail, right? Because the the bots are going to do it. And isn't that why we go to college? It's not a trade school. It's a university where you're supposed to get all of that well-rounded understanding of human history and culture. So, And one more thing, Donna, Ken, I want to just add something right before you, you, you say your piece, that there's also no attention to the fact that probably a fair amount of architects being trained today and ones that have matured in their profession in the last 50 years are just not working in the U.S., yeah. that they right. just left, yeah. or the projects that they're attached to are not in the U.S., so that there's like the scope of this just really wasn't clearly defined, but it was very insular. Well, that, that's, you know, again, it's, it, we know that we know a round peg, if appropriately placed, will fit in a square hole. We know that. You just have to force it. So, no, I mean, I've seen those toys and you can actually get, you know, I, <laughs> you can get, but. The contrarian child. Hey, there's that kid who's going to do that. So, you know, the idea that you come out of architecture school, you're going to be an architect, it fits his narrative, but it's not a global understanding and, and doesn't even recognize that there's a global condition that architects in America today, based on the fact that we have the connectivity that we do have, are not just practicing here. They're practicing all over the world. And that's not something that that's that's relatively new in terms of thinking. That's not that wasn't happening 15 or 20 years ago, at least not to my knowledge, it wasn't. And the idea that what's patently absurd is that somebody is going to architecture school, getting a master's degree for a suicide mission because they want to fucking be live the lifestyle of an architect. What kind of fucking moronic thinking (laughs) is that? That's the kind of moronic thinking that you get when you spend 30 years designing traditional homes. You have traditional mindset. I mean, no one is going to school to learn how to build a small traditional house. And that's what he does. I mean, so the idea that we're all going to have to have the same experiences coming out of college, I didn't know how to build anything. My only regret in school was that I didn't spend the summers working for a general contractor, just carting brick around the yard. Because I would have had a better understanding of construction, and I would have never gotten that in school because it's not, to me, really understanding how a building goes together, it happens in the practice of the profession, not in the learning of the profession. Not in my mind, because when I went to school, my brain was opened up to the possibilities of architecture, not to the limited 
you know, building components of how to put a building together, because that that stuff is dated by the time you get out of school. So, I mean, I'm going to be learning about how to put a building together in an architect's office under a licensed practitioner. It's just, it's so, such a narrow thinking. It just drives me nuts when I read stuff like this. Well, I mean, I don't have much to say about this article. He lost me about 10 seconds into (laughs) reading this because, I mean, he starts off by saying that there are fewer jobs in architecture than a decade ago and that there are more architects than we can facilitate right now. I mean, it's complete bullshit. I mean, we, we, we have, you know, the biggest job board in the industry on Archonnect and we talk to employers every day and it is harder than ever right now to find architects because there is so much work to be given out and so few people to fill those positions. So, I mean, he starts out this article with like just some really ignorant sounding stats that are just not right. They're not correct. And Ken, you brought this up that you, it reminded you of Medium. I'm not sure exactly what kind of editorial standard Common Edge has, but they certainly don't spell check no. enough to know that Archetizer, Archetizer yeah. is not a thing. It does not exist. And also using that as a means of comparison in you know, statistical analysis. Yeah, great sword for sta- yeah. Uh, source for stats. <laughs> it's, it's a, apparently it's a nonprofit publication. Well, if I can make one recommendation, I think what Duo might be interested in doing is hiring one of these young design professionals that has just recently graduated and knows how to put a square page website together. And that might be something you can start off doing first (laughs) before criticizing architecture students about their background and their (laughs) knowledge. Because I know the one thing that an architecture student could put a pretty decent website together. That I'm sure. (laughs) They can construct that. Very helpful advice. This episode not brought to you by Squarespace. (laughs) Can you fit a Squarespace into a round space? Into a round (laughs) On the internet? Yes. If I can just take it back to sort of journalism and the sedative journalism we're in right now. And um, Amelia, I hope this appeals to you. This article is everything that we've said about it, but I want to put out a plug for a very difficult article completely on a different topic, which was on Jezebel, the website Jezebel recently. Gia Tolentino wrote an article called What Should We Say About David Bowie and Laurie Maddox? And it's a really difficult read that goes into a whole lot of really hard questions to answer. And she comes to the conclusion that there's no way to, to come to a, 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 an answer in your mind about this situation that will not require you to hold two conflicting views at the same time. And I think, unfortunately, even though those kind of things are hard to read, I think that's the kinds of conversations we should be having about things like architecture and art and music and all of these things. Because as you also said, Amelia, the world has changed so de- drastically and is only changing more quickly every day. We need to have better discussions than what we're having, let's say, at the you know presidential election debates. So <laughs> I, I just want to put in a plug for that article about David Bowie and Laurie Maddox, which is a it's a challenging read, but it's a really good one. Thanks, Donna. Yeah, of anything that can be said about these things and kind of bridge those two concepts together is just like that there's nothing so simple that can be distilled into clear black and white arguments. And that anytime we're talking about some massive celebrity, whether it be in the form of architecture or some something like someone like David Bowie, it's like there is no simple answers and that right. humans are complicated people with no set of like <laughs> clear means of, of uh, you know, understanding what their cultural impact will be as related to their personal history. So right. we'll add that to the show notes and people can, can refer to it. Can- I, I wasn't familiar with that whole historical part of Bowie's professional career until I saw that article, in fact. Well, so, so, I mean, the article was just to illuminate for you guys, if you haven't read it, the the article's about David Bowie having sex with a 15-year-old girl back in the 70s. And anyone, I mean, I'm old, I'm almost 50. 
you know, I read all the Led Zeppelin stories about their groupies. There was a whole groupie culture. It's a, it, the world was very different in the 70s and our attitudes towards sex and women have evolved so dramatically that then when you read someone who's, you know, older and comes from a much more traditional side of architecture and is giving these opinions about how architecture is happening today. In a lot of ways, you just have to say, old people, get out of the way because we're, <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're old. We need to understand that the world is not going to stay the way we want it to. But Donna, we're not going to kick you out of the podcast. We're not going to stay to, you know, must be younger than 50 years old. To be <laughs> That's because I love the emerging professionals. I love them. I love them. So Amelia, you want to, yep. you want to talk about a celebrity? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now to flawlessly transition into another idea of celebrity status and notoriety in the world of architecture. Within the last week, we've seen two announcements from the AIA as to their particular keynote speakers in the upcoming national convention <laughs> happening in, in May in Philadelphia. Last week, I believe last Tuesday, Julia Engels in our office posted on the first announcement that the keynote speaker for day number one would be none other than Kevin Spacey. <laughs> apparently every architect's, you know, favorite. Uh, sex symbol. Sex symbol. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't care how many things Kevin Spacey has been in. The first thing I always think of whenever I hear his name is his the role he played in K-Pax where he eats a banana with a peel on. <laughs> <laughs> where he like is just a weirdo who thinks he's an alien and bites into a banana. Anywho, so he has been chosen to give the first day's keynote. And in the copy that the AIA sent out to kind of explain this choice to have him as the keynote, they characterize him as a disruptor of industries because he was on, he is on House of Cards and is the producer of it, which was the first Netflix produced original series and has such had a specific you know spot in television and media history as kind of being this disruptor of the what the AIA calls the appointment television world, which I had never heard of. But apparently that means anything other than the binging on demand, uh, things like Netflix and Amazon Prime. This was a little bit strange for us to grapple with simply because there seems to be no explicit relationship between Kevin Spacey and architecture, as far as I know, and as far as my research has told me. But the AIA feels like his status in this media disruptor role is enough to make him an inspiring figure for architects. There was the line that we quoted from in the AIA's announcement of this, that what can architects learn from an award-winning producer and actor whose Netflix original series made appointment TV obsolete? A lot. <laughs> so if that doesn't get your you know, sandals flapping to go register for the AIA's national convention, then maybe Rem Kohlhaas will. Woo! So just earlier today, the day we're recording the podcast on Wednesday, we heard from the AIA, thanks with the speedy press release from Donna as well, that Rem Kohlhaas will be giving the third, the day three keynote address. The second day will be delivered by Neri Oxman, who is a, she's also kind of on the peripheral of architecture world, but she is, I believe, leads the MIT Media Lab. Media Lab, or it's it's something within that world. I don't think it's particularly the Media Lab. We'll, we'll find that specifically and perhaps even scratch this and address her particular <laughs> later. But this, of course, the, the announcement that Kohlhaas was going to give the day three keynote kind of was also was just as surprising in a way as the Kaiser I almost said Kaiser, <laughs> Kaiser as the Kevin Spacey announcement, only because that of course Kohlhaas is gigantic figure in architecture, but less so in the institutional world of the AIA. He's going to give a talk entitled Delirious Philadelphia, which Nicholas in our office reported described as a kick in the pants from Kohlhaas in the announcement from the AIA, which is of course a riff on the nineteen seventy-eight Delirious New York. And other, there really isn't much more information about what he's going to do there. But what are we seeing here in the AIA? It's very strange, at least on its face, uh, assemblage of people. We have 
Kaiser Soze, as he'll forever be known, um, and Rem Kohlhaas and Nari Oxman. And we've seen in previous years this other, this kind of grouping of different professionals, always including an architect or at least someone, at least somehow involved in architecture appropriately. And then also some kind of large mainstream pop cultural figure. Uh, we had Fer- Pharrell giving a keynote speech in 2014. And then some, sometimes a political figure, maybe the political and the celebrity are both fulfilled by Kevin Spacey this time around. But for example, the year that Pharrell was also there, they had Theester Gates and Jeannie Gangs. And Theester Gates is very well known for his work in Chicago and doing art and architectural work. And that kind of does integrate the city of Chicago in a way that could kind of be called maybe political by some. So I don't know, what do you guys make of this? This very strange or this, this fascinating pairing or um, assembly of these three keynotes? So it seems like there's kind of a code here where there's a pop culture figure, somebody that is representing kind of a a fringe specialty and a prominent architect. That seems to be something of the general rubric that at least in in what I was looking through of the last uh, four years of keynotes or or through 2012, that that does seem to be a a pretty standard way of approaching this. And, And we reached out to Phil Simon, who does marketing for the AIA and has so for, I believe, the last 13 years to, to be on the podcast with us today and talk about the choices behind these keynotes. And unfortunately, he couldn't join us. But I think we're, what we're just trying to figure out is what is the AIA saying about architecture <laughs> through these keynotes? Why are they collecting these, you know, celebrity baseball cards to <laughs> show to their potential registered uh, attendees? See, this goes to the previous uh, piece that we talked about and to Duo Dickinson. This is what happens when you don't have design professionals who spend a lot of time thinking about relationships and design in school constructing events like this. So they focus more on these kinds of pieces and don't figure out how to put together a cohesive narrative. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's really, if you're going to talk about disruption in this kind of, and this, this, look, your first, your keynote, your first day keynote is kind of setting the tone for the other two. So if you want to start talking about disruption, which is great, fantastic, far be it for me to kind of wonder about the AIA as a disruptive organization. I mean, they've they certainly made their presence felt in a lot of people's lives in so many ways. But the idea that they want to introduce the idea of disruption in an organization primarily run by a bunch of old white guys is kind of funny. And if you really want to talk about disruption, I mean, and you want to talk about pop culture, if you really want to get down and dirty and talk about the idea of disruption, you, you bring in Kanye West. You bring in someone on that <laughs> level. Look, he's already been to Harvard School of Design. He's been there already. So he has a connection to architecture. I mean, and, and he's a disruptive force. I mean, whether or not you like him or not, that's fine. You can say whatever you want, but he hits a lot of bases right there. And and apparently he really needs the money. And he's $53 million in debt. Exactly. I was going to say his speaker's fee is $53 million. That's not going to fly. <laughs> It'll get him out of debt. But- you know, if there's a celebrity, if there's a celebrity kind of thing that they're, if this is the kind of the paradigm that they set up for themselves, where they want to have a, a celebrity, then they want to have somebody this, uh, this kind of tangentially connected, then they want to have an architect, fine. You know, you could bridge all three of those and you can bring in Brad Pitt and you can, you can stop paying the other two people to show up and just have Brad Pitt come because at least Brad Pitt's shaking hands with Frank Gehry. At least Brad Pitt has an interest in architecture and has actually done something of value in a community of where design professionals are so badly needed. So, you know, the AIA can't get out of its own fucking way. It's irritating. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, this announcement of Kevin Spacey just makes me feel like they are trying to get any celebrity that might, you know, connect well with the architecture industry. And then after they confirm that celebrity, try to justify a reason to, uh, to have them as a speaker. But I, I, I must say, though, I think Kevin Spacey is just going to like be fully camouflaged within the, the crowd at the AA National Convention. He kind of seems like the stereotypical, you know, conservative corporate architect that the look that he has. So he's going to blend in well. I wonder if he'll deliver his a keynote in that particular blend of Southern accent that he has on House of Cards, which is <laughs> supposedly doesn't actually exist in, in, yes, in American I, reality. <laughs> I should also clarify, because I kind of stumbled over the second day's keynote speaker, Neri Oxman. Her particular role is, is, at indeed, is indeed at the MIT Media Lab, where she founded and directs the Mediated Matter Design Research Group, which is also something that in regards to bringing it back to the Duo Dickinson piece, she is very much this kind of, has this presence in the architecture world that is what Duo would presumably be raging against or just completely unaccepting of. And in a way, the AIA is kind of giving some kind of validation and credence to that position in, in the role of architecture by bringing her in. And, she, and her work is pretty fascinating and amazing stuff and very cool experimental things, just like what MIT is known for. But it does seem to kind of fulfill that check the box, okay, in case you're not swayed by Spacey's char charisma or Kohlhaas's cachet, you've got this kind of like also kind of out of the box, fascinating technological weirdness going on. I'm not sure exactly what will happen at the day of, but if it's anything like when we were there last year and getting to hear Bill Clinton's keynote address is that these things do have the tendency of feeling like canned political rallies where <laughs> it's like the person speaking is has been put together and knows what they're going to say and they give their presentation and the clapping happens and then everyone moves on. <laughs> so, happens. and to go to that though, I, I, I will say I, I'm on the AIA locally. We've done stuff. We have had events where we basically said we need to get a TV presenter type person, a local TV person to come and be our MC because frankly, those people know how to talk to a crowd. And I have to say, Kevin Spacey, no matter what he talks about, I'm sure it'll be engaging and interesting and fun to watch because he's an actor and he's he does that. You know, he he can uh, I'm certain that he can present himself in a way and present his information in a way that everyone will be fascinated by. And that's one of those things going back again to the Duo Dickinson article. One of those great things you should be getting out of architecture school and higher education is an understanding of how to make a presentation, right? How to hmm. sell a certain story. So if nothing else, I'm certain Kevin Spacey will be fun to listen to. On the point of disruption, though, and I hate to say this, sorry, AIA, I will be there. I'm so excited. It's going to be fun. I'm a president of a local chapter. I'm a big AIA supporter. But frankly, the sessions, the educational sessions for this year are so not disruptive. They are <laughs> entirely like how to increase thermal value in your wall and how to, uh, yeah, they're not, they're not going to be super exciting. But I'm sure Kevin will be great. I thought your session last year was going to start a new trend in disruptive discussions at the convention. I thought so too, but somehow this year they just went right back to all the HSW points that we need and yeah. the yeah, it's they look really boring frankly. So, I mean, I'm like I said I can talk about this one too forever. It's really really frustrating. You know, why is it that I have we have to wait for and this is again going to the idea of disruption. The idea that, you know, that we have to wait for people like me who will be in his 70s to start like bringing in, hey, we got a tracking Kanye West now. I mean, who will, in my 70s won't be even remotely relevant. I mean, you know, this is a safe 
very safe. It's fun. It's a safe choice. It's fun. He gets to get up there and, and give his FU with his Frank Underwood ring and he gets to show it and give, get people high. You know, if, if the people on the, on Arconnect really want to do something about and stop, you know, being the side rabble that has nothing important to say, join the AIA. And they're, you know, we can push forward changes. We can make these things happen. We can be disruptive if you actually join a stupid organization. And I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm part of the organization myself. And, and you know what? I mean, you know, I can't be the one. To, I think individually we, need, we can't do those things, but together we can actually make those things happen and make those changes. And if we don't like who's representing us and bringing us these ridiculous presentations, then, you know, we got to disrupt it. And the AIA has given us kind of carte blanche to do that. So go there, become part of the disruption and just stop taking, you know, become, you know, become part of the, be a trumpeter, you know, I mean, go out there and, and be like Donald Trump, you know, make the AIA great again. <laughs> is that what, is that what his support is yeah, called? <laughs> this podcast just is not coined the Trump. term. That's our episode title this weekend. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, Trump for AIA keynote speaker. Oh my gosh, that would <laughs> yeah, be no. dream well, come I, true. For as much, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't understand I, the disruptive uh, reference with uh, Kevin Spacey, but I have to say, Nary Oxman's selection makes up for everything. I think, I think that was a great selection for keynote speaker. Yeah, she's going to be excellent. I can't wait. And she's much better looking than both of them. Oh, combined. stop! <laughs> but she is. But stop. And plus, she's talking about different, you know, building. Sorry and- to to pick up on Ken's prompting for people to join the damn AIA. If you join for the first time, if you're a new member now and you join, you get to go to the convention for free. So you don't have to pay for the registration. So yeah, a bunch of people, young people with great ideas about cool things should join and come and disrupt things. Excellent. We'll get out the agitprop as soon as we can design something. Let's get Killian Riano back on again to to talk about the architecture lobby and get them to have have a place at the table. Good idea. Yes. Yeah, I love Killian. Who doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for this week's episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and uh, reviewing us. And um, watch out for our next one-to-one episode that's released every Monday. Amelia, who's uh, next up on one-to-one? This coming Monday, we have Alan Loomis, who is a urban designer and city planner in the city of Glendale. Um, he is very active in the LA scene in general and um, also a original Arcanex contributor back yeah. in the like... Back in the original news crew days. I'm sure Donna and Cam, you guys probably remember Alan Loomis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I remember seeing his name in the forums. Yep. Yeah. So he's still trucking and he came into the studio to, to talk and it was great. So look forward to that episode. All right. Thanks for listening and uh, talk to everybody next week. Have a great week, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.